So let me let you into a little window in my life as we come to Genesis chapter 1 this morning. I found God using this chapter in my life in ways that I didn't fully expect when I originally jumped into it. Um, I am by nature kind of a happy guy. Those people that know me know that I see the world in, in a way that says the cup is half full. If the cup isn't half full, I think to myself, well, we can get it there. You know, like we'll get it there. What you see with me is what you get. I'm not prone to um, really anxiety or depression or despair. It's not that I don't have moments like that, but just the way God's made me, that's how I, that's how just I, I function. Um, but this past week, God and I had a bit of a moment together. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments with God where we just had a bit of a discussion, he and I. Uh, it was about Wednesday, and I just realized there was something going on in my heart and mind, just the way that I was looking at things. I had begun struggling, and, and as I began to unpack it, I looked back over the last number of weeks, and I began to realize that there were things that were going on in my life or the life of those around me that began to kind of weigh on me. And kind of really began to kind of cloud my vision on a couple of of things. It was just life happening. Somebody I know and I care about had a surgery that didn't go according to plan. And they're continually living with the reality of that. Uh, I had some different family members with some different situations. That they were looking forward to certain things like good things. Like things I was very happy for them about. Things that I kind of wanted for them. And just at like the last moment, those things fell through, and and what they were expecting didn't didn't happen. Um, so I was feeling that for the, for them. Uh, I have a couple of close friends who are struggling with interpersonal relationships, and there's conflicts that exist, and and it doesn't look like those things are necessarily coming to an end anytime soon. And and we want reconciliation, but is it going to happen? I have some other friends who are fighting with physical ailments. That when I take a step back and look at it, I'm just like, why are they having to go? Why are they having to go through this? And they're they're doing everything they should be doing, and yet nothing seems to to be changing. It. Have you ever had the weight of those kind of things before? Have you ever felt that in in your life? Um, what I found it doing for me was it began to to change my perspective. With all those things just kind of up before me, I found my heart going to places. And, and asking things that I was surprised by. I, I found myself struggling even with some of my prayers or even wanting to pray, thinking, can God really do anything about this? Like, I'm just being totally transparent and honest. Like, because of everything and just kind of one thing after the other, it's just like, I don't know. I don't know. that Can God really bring a healing there? Can God really bring about restoration? And, and I'd be found myself wondering, is God really in control here? Like, these were some good things that I wanted for some people, and they're not, they're not getting those things. And, and so I just, I found these thoughts just kind of keep coming to the forefront of my mind, and, and, I, and I had to deal with them. I had to, I had to deal with them, because, because I found myself going to places that I'm like, this just, there's not hope here. There's not, there's not peace here. And it was in the midst of that that I kind of started to bring these things before the Lord, kind of recognize what I was starting to, to think. And I came before the Lord, and what he did was he brought me back to the message that I've been preparing for today and pointing out specifically the message that he wanted, I believe, for not just all of us, but, but for me from Genesis chapter, chapter 1. And, and so my hope this morning is that as we go to Genesis chapter 1, what God did for me and how he helped me, and by the way, none of those situations have changed. Like, none of them have gotten any better. Like, they're, they're still 
people are still disappointed with things, people haven't been healed, nothing like that. But I will tell you, my heart and my perspective and how I'm engaging those things has been able to change because of what Genesis 1 has to say. And so if you find yourself in that place today, I'm hoping that this message might do that for you. I'm also hoping if you don't find yourself in that place today, that this might be a message that kind of gets stored somewhere back in the databanks of your mind so that when those times come, you have an anchor for your soul in the midst of this. So here's what we're going to do. If you have your Bible, I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. In just a moment, rather than me standing up here and reading the entirety of Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to show you a video of somebody reading Genesis chapter 1. You're going to hear the voice. You're going to see the words on the screen. But then you're also going to see the images from our from our world and from our universe that correspond with the things that God created. It's a very powerful video. I think it helps to engage us. Now, as we prepare to hear this word spoken, as we prepare to see these images, here's what I want you, though, to do. If we're going to get to the heart of Genesis chapter 1, what that chapter is ultimately about, there's a couple of things that we're going to have to do. Number one, we're going to have to remember who this was originally written to. What was the context that it was written to? When you understand that, it's going to make sense of this passage all the more. Do you see, because Genesis and the Pentateuch was written, ultimately inspired by God, written down by Moses, and delivered to the people of Israel after they had been delivered out of Egypt, out of slavery for 400 years, after they had been in the desert for 40 years, and were now getting ready to go into the promised land. Now, here's why that's important as we listen to Genesis chapter 1. Because you have this group of people who haven't had a permanent home for 40 years, who even before that had been in slavery, they had seen God miraculously deliver them and conquer the quote-unquote gods of the Egyptians and take them out of Egypt. But now, here they were, based on the promise of God, getting ready to go into the promised land, current-day Israel. They were getting ready to go into there where there were people already living, and God said, don't worry. I'm going to take care of them. They saw God take care of the Egyptian gods, but they knew that these people had gods of their own. Was God going to be powerful enough to deal with them? And so you have these people who were unsettled, these people who were not necessarily stable, and they're getting ready to go into this place. And so keep that in mind, because God writes Genesis chapter 1 to them, because he's wanting to help them to understand his character, and to understand his nature. And so as we listen to this in just a moment, I want you to think about, wow, what is this passage telling me about the character and the nature of our God? There's a real tendency for us to come to Genesis 1 in today's day and age as modern people and say, what does this have to tell us about science, and what does this have to tell us about evolutionary theory? I'm here to tell you today that wasn't on the mind of Moses when he wrote this. It's not that this doesn't speak into those things, but this was being written to a people who didn't have those modern-day concerns on their mind. The second thing that you and I have to know as we listen to Genesis chapter 1 is that this chapter is different than the rest of the chapters in the books in the, the rest of the chapters in the book of Genesis. The rest of Genesis is a book that has for us and is written in a way that we would call historical narrative. Very clearly, like Exodus, like the book of Joshua, like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, or the gospel accounts that we have in the New Testament or the book of Acts, those are what we call historical narrative. They are, they are written in a way that record for us historical events that God wanted us to know about 
because he's trying to communicate things about himself through those historical events. But when you come to Genesis chapter 1, you're going to notice it doesn't sound anything or it's not written in the style of historical narrative. Instead, Genesis chapter 1, it, when you hear it, you're going to hear it in just a second. I'm really building to this. So I hope you guys are eager. right? <clears throat> when, you, when you hear it, you're going to hear these refrains and these patterns repeated over and over again. So you're going to hear certain words over and over again. You're going to hear certain themes over and over again. This fits what we call, are you ready for this? I hate doing this. It's not, I'm not smart, right? Other people have said these things. It fits what's called a strophic structure. Try saying that five times fast, okay? Strophic structure. If you're a literature major, you might know what I'm meaning by that. It means that it's, it's written as kind of like poetry. Genesis 1 is written like a song that, that repeats certain themes over and over again. And the repetition of those themes, as I'll show you, in just a moment, the repetition of those themes, each one is intended to communicate something. He's not repeating words just for kicks and giggles, right? He's repeating things over and over again in a certain style to get a message across. And what's interesting is, some might say, well, wait a sec, was there a different author for Genesis chapter 1 versus Genesis chapter 2? Why the different style? Why isn't there a consistency? Well, because God's trying to communicate something very unique here in Genesis chapter 1. And this isn't the only place this happens. In the book of Exodus, there's a historical narrative in Exodus where it comes and it says in one chapter, well, here's how the Red Sea was crossed. It's in Exodus chapter 14. And then in Exodus 15, what happens? Miriam sings a song about that historical event. The same thing happens in the book of Judges. The Israelites conquer an Assyrian army. And then in Judges chapter 5, Deborah sings about that event. So, so we have this in the Bible where in one chapter you have this song, and then in the next chapter there's back to historical narrative. So if we keep this in mind, one, who were these people? What was the style of this chapter? In just a moment we're going to be able to see the message of this chapter all the more clearly. So with that said, without further ado, listen to, watch with me, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis Genesis 1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. 
And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, 
And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now the video doesn't have it, but the story doesn't end there. Because in the first chapter of Genesis 1, it continues into Genesis chapter 2, where we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So there you have it. Genesis chapter 1, a little bit of Genesis chapter 2. Powerful images, but all the more powerful words. I want to propose to you once again that there is a very specific message that Genesis 1 has for us. I want to propose for you and for myself that with Genesis chapter 1, what we have here is a song. We have God coming to us in song and describing for us his creating the world the heavens and the earth. And, and, his, and his communication of this to us is for the, the purpose of helping us to understand his character and his nature in a way that we as the people of God would be drawn to worship, love, and obey him. And the structure of Genesis chapter 1, the style of Genesis chapter 1, the repeated refrains within Genesis chapter 1, I think, draw attention to three things about our God that we need to see this morning. Three things that he wants for us as his people to clearly understand. The first one is this. Our God is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. Some of you are going to be, Pastor Dave, I know that. I'll tell you this week, I knew that intellectually. But in my heart and in my mind, the way that I was functioning was as though those things weren't true. I needed Genesis chapter 1. I needed the reminder from Genesis chapter 1 of his power. And it's on full display. The fact that our God is all-powerful without question is first and foremost realized that from nothing came everything. From nothing, God created all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing there for him to work with. The earth was without form and void. So when he filled it, when he made it, he was working with with nothing. But from nothing, he created all things. He did not use pre-existent materials. He is unlike us. We can create nothing in this world without existing material. Not so with our God. You want to know how powerful he was? You want to know how powerful he is? When he was communicating to those Israelites, he was combating. He was combating all other worldviews at that time. You see, the Israelites and the cultures around them, did you know that this isn't the only creation story that we have in recorded history? Other cultures at the time when Moses delivered this message to the Israelites, we have record from other ancient cultures of them trying to make sense of creation with their own stories. And, and all of those other creation stories don't involve one God. They always involve multiple gods. 
and those gods battling one another. One ancient story has two gods battling one another, and the one god winning and then taking the carcass of the dead god and, and planting it on the earth, and from that all life sprung forth. Pretty picture, huh? That's how they were functioning, and that's how they were thinking. And God says, hey, in, in the way things really went down, nobody else was there. I didn't even have any battles. There was nobody else to battle. I brought everything into existence out of nothing. And he did it by simply what? Speaking. Simply speaking. Chaos becomes a cosmos. Disorder becomes order just by God speaking. In verse 2 of this chapter... We have this picture that the, the earth being without form and void. And then it says, And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the ancient world, people were petrified of the sea because it was the thing that was untamed. People, when they would even navigate the sea, they stayed as close to shore as, as they could because to go out in the waters was a dangerous thing. And yet here we have God, again, communicating to his people in this painting this picture saying, you know what, that sea that's all big and scary, I'm just hovering over it. I have it all under control. I am all powerful. And then he comes and he says that he did it in six days. You now, there have been lots of debates over how long were those days. Was it six literal days? Was it eons and those things? Come on the first Wednesday of October, because I'm going to do a Q&A and I'll talk in more detail about this. But here's what I'll tell you right now. When this was originally written, the first people that received this, they believed it to be six literal days. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, when Moses is giving the law to the people, he's talking about the Sabbath day and how they're supposed to keep it holy. And in verse 11, he said this, For in six days, remember he's talking to the Israelites, for in six days, trust me, they're not thinking about eons. They're not thinking about old earth, young earth. They're thinking about, well, yeah, there's six days in a week. That's how we function. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Now, people can debate this all they want, but here's what I'm going to say. There's, there's one scholar, Derek Kidner, who actually, he's a Christian. He doesn't believe in six literal days, but this is what he does say. Because Moses tells us the creation of the world took place in six days, it cuts creation down to size. I believe that to be true. In fact, Augustine, that great theologian, said he struggled with it being six days. He said, why would it take God that long? And I think that's the point of it. The point of it is to show, listen, I'm all-powerful. I can just speak things into existence, and it only takes me six days. Our God is all-powerful. Why did the Israelites need to hear this? I'll tell you why they needed to hear it. Because they're getting ready to go into this promised land but is God powerful enough? Is he powerful enough to deal with the people that are there? Will they be able to conquer them? God comes and he writes to them. And he says, you want, you want to know how everything came into being? Let me just paint you a picture of it. There was nothing but me. And then there was everything because I spoke and I made it happen. Did you think that I'm powerful enough to actually help you as you go into the promised land? What brought everything into existence? I did. Nobody else. They needed that message. We need that message. We need to be reminded of the power of God because here's the issue. We are engaged day to day in the creation and engaged in our 
world and we're faced with circumstances and things where we need we need to know that an all-powerful God can actually intercede and help or can be there for us and sustain us, that he can be a refuge for us through our difficulties because our, our hearts, our minds are prone, I believe, to not believe in the power of God and his sufficiency for us. But Genesis comes to us and says, listen, in your darkest days, in your darkest days, in those stormiest days, in the cloudiest days, when it appears that the sun's not shining, there is still an all-powerful, eternal God who's an unshakable refuge. And in Psalm 121, the psalmist even said these words. He said, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? He says, my help comes from you. And then what does he say about him? Do you know this? The maker of what? Heaven and earth. The psalmist says, you want to know what brings comfort to my heart? When I'm struggling, when I need help, I look up to the hills. I don't see anything in creation being able to help me, but I go beyond the hills, I go beyond the cattle, and I look to the one who made the cattle, who made the hills. The maker of heaven and earth. If you made the heavens and the earth, I can believe that you are powerful enough to be there for me. See, if we don't believe in an all-powerful God, then what we do is we take power into our own hands. We try to change things. We try to move. We try to control. and, And that might get you so far, but eventually you're not strong enough. I'm not strong enough. It's why the Apostle Paul... He tied it all together when he said, My grace is sufficient for you. He's quoting the Lord. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Listen, you can't conjure up the strength. I can't conjure up the strength with inside of ourselves to deal with some of the things in our lives that we have to deal with. Instead, we must look to the one, the maker of heaven and earth, who is strong enough, who is powerful enough, to do those things that he says that he can do. Amen? We need this. We need this. When we're raising our children, when we're in a relationship that seems too hard, God is all-powerful. And again, you'll say to me, Dave, I know this to be true. I know he's all-powerful, but do you believe it? For Christians, I find that one of the most remarkable ways that we demonstrate that we don't believe that God is all-powerful is in the fact that so often we will act in a way where we will sin against God and we don't believe that he can actually forgive us. We will bring our sin before the Lord because can he really forgive? Can he, can he really love me in this? If God is all-powerful and that he says that in and through his son Jesus Christ, he placed all of your sin and my sin upon Christ. You think he was powerful in creating the heavens and the earth? How much more was his power on display in Jesus Christ when he died for you? He is all-powerful. We see it in his creation, but more, we see it in the death of Jesus Christ, who through his death demonstrated a power over sin and death and hell. When we're not living in the forgiveness, in the new life that is ours, the righteousness that is ours in Jesus Christ, we're actually demonstrating we don't believe that our God is all-powerful. But we come to this chapter, and God is showing us that he's all-powerful, but he's also showing us something else. He's all-sovereign. He's all-sovereign. We don't, we don't use in everyday vernacular the word sovereignty all that often, 
we don't talk about people being sovereign anymore. When we talk about our God being all sovereign, we're saying that he is the ruler over everything. If God being all powerful answers the question for my heart, can God really do anything about this? If God being all powerful answers the question with a definitive, yes, he can. God being all sovereign, that is the ruler over everything and in control of everything, answers the question, does God really know what's going on? Is he really even involved? Genesis chapter 1 says, oh, he is involved. He's the ruler over all things. And it's evidenced in a couple of ways. Our God is all sovereign. What does that mean? We get that from this. Did you notice in the text, all things received their names from God. Why over and over, five times, does the book of Genesis, chapter 1, tell us that as God was creating, he named the things that he created? Because it's the same reason why you get to name your child when you give birth to it. It's yours. It came from you. You name your child because you have a... Bear with me, kids, if you're in the room. Your parents have ownership rights. I'm naming you because you're mine. God called the light day and the darkness he called night because he made them. They're his. God called the expanse heaven because he created it. God called the dry land earth and the waters he called seas because he is the creator of it. He has the naming rights. All things receive their name from God to demonstrate to the Israelites and to us. If you name it, it's because you own it, because it's yours. So when he names all these things, God's saying they're all mine. I'm over them all. But it's not just that he names things. All things received their names from God in this text. And God established a hierarchy in the creation with him at the top. This is something that most people don't even pick up when they are reading through Genesis chapter 1. But in Genesis chapter 1, God creates a hierarchy within creation. What do I mean by that? On days 1, 2, and 3, God creates what we call realms. He creates realms. That's the imagery that's being communicated to us. He creates realms. On day 1, he creates the realm of light and darkness. On day 2, he creates the realm of water and sky. On day 3, he creates the realm of the land. And then what happens on day four? On days four, five, and six, he creates rulers for those realms. In the heavens, with the light and the darkness, he creates the greater light and the lesser light and also the stars. When he comes to day day four or day five and he's filling up the realm of water and sky, he creates rulers for the water and the sky, the birds and the fish. And when he comes to the land which he created on the sixth day, he creates the animals and then he places man above all of creation. And he says, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that creeps along the land. Genesis is this beautiful song that's being sung to say, do you see it? Do you see God creating these realms and then creating rulers of realms? But then, at the very end, on day seven, what does God do? He rests. We really get this wrong. 
when God rests on the seventh day, we picture God finding a lazy boy chair, kicking up his feet, and being like, whew, boy, what a week. They would not have thought that at all. For God to rest on the seventh day, for him to name everything, to create these realms, and then the rulers within these realms, and then to rest, the image is not him sitting in a lazy boy. The image is him coming and sitting down on his throne as the king who now surveys all that is his. God's resting is to mean I am now on my throne in my rule over all things. It is exactly what I intended it to be. All of this is in subjection to me. In fact, this is all the more evidenced by the fact that when it comes to the sun and the moon, did you notice that he does not name the sun the sun and the moon the moon? He just simply calls them the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And we can just read past that and we're like, oh, okay, lesser light. And we, and we immediately know he's talking about the sun and the moon. But he doesn't name them. Do you know why he doesn't name them? Because the Israelites just came out of Egypt. And do you know the two major gods in Egypt? And what they were represented by? Any guesses? Any guesses? The sun and the moon. And they had names. And so you know what God does? He says, I want to make it abundantly clear to you that there are they're no gods at all. I'm just calling that amazing thing that everybody worships in Egypt, I'm just calling it the greater light. And I'm calling that thing that they also worship the moon, the lesser light. I'm not even going to bother giving them names because I don't want you to think for one moment that I created gods. It's just a greater light and a lesser light. Isn't that fascinating? These are the things that we can, that we can miss but are hitting the point home for the Israelites and for our hearts. Look at God is all-powerful, but he's also all-sovereign. Over all things, God rules and he is in control. Now, why is this message important? This message is so important to us. Remembering that God creates realms and rulers over those realms. See, we can look at things in creation like the Egyptians, and we can be pretty blown away by them. We can say, wow, that's majestic. That creates awe. That, that, that's amazing. And what the Egyptians would do is they would take the things of creation, they would turn them into gods. I don't think anybody here today is probably having trouble worshiping the sun. Anybody here, any sun god worshipers here? Maybe if you try to get tans and then you'll get skin cancer. But then, no, no, no sun worshipers here. Probably no moon worshipers here. But our hearts are tempted to worship the creation rather than the creator, aren't they? Not the sun and the moon necessarily, but the things of creation. The things that come with the creation. The pleasures that creation creates. We're tempted to make them rulers. God says, in a sense, they are powerful. Pleasure is powerful. The desire for relationships are powerful. The desire for people's approval is a powerful thing. But they're not the ultimate. You, as Humans are over all creation. Creation is there to serve you. You are there to reflect God's character to creation. But we must never forget that there is one who rules over all creation. 
And last week we looked at Romans chapter 1 when Paul says, here's the problem with humanity. We substitute worship of the creator, the ruler over all, for the creation. Do you see? Like we can look at the Egyptians and we can look at them worshiping nature and we can say, you're crazy. It's just, it's a ball of gas and it's a lump of rock in the sky. It's not a God. But do we ever look at ourselves and our situations and recognize, oh my, I might not be worshiping the sun and the moon, but I'm still worshiping things in the creation. I'm worshiping people's approval of me. I'm worshiping and and living for the the pleasures of the creation, for my career. I'm I'm living for the money that, that, that can be produced. Even Jason in his prayer today he talked about how we can even take good things like, like food and we worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. God comes to us in Genesis chapter 1 and he says, stop it. <laughs> Don't go there. You, you're not meant for the creation. You're meant for me and to worship me. When we lose sight of God as being all sovereign over all things, we fall into the temptation of living for the creation rather than the creator. God says, this isn't what you were made for. You're coming under my worship. and You're supposed to come under worship of me and my reign and and my rule. And just in case we're prone to wonder, I get that you're all powerful. I get that you're all sovereign. I get that that should lead me to worship, love, and, and to obey you. But God says, don't just see me in that way as all-powerful and all-sovereign. This chapter comes and says, don't forget for a moment that he's also all-good. Not, not it's all-good. He is all-good. And this is evidenced by this statement. The perfection of creation, the provision God has for the creation... And God's declaration that all things were good is God coming and making it known to you and to me. He is all good. The creation that he makes is perfect. God doesn't make the world, the heavens and the earth, and and he creates it with a problem. He makes it absolutely perfect. No death, no suffering. Everything's humming. Everything's functioning. And just to show how what a good God he is, he doesn't just make it perfect. He comes and he provides for it. He provides for it. Listen, each of the days in creation, as he's laying down the cosmos, he's making sure that the waters are there to provide for the fish, the the plants are there to provide for the animals and for the humans. Everything that creation needs to thrive and live and grow, God has provided for. He doesn't leave anything out of the equation. It shows his goodness. And then he finally comes and he says, And by the way, in case you're not clear on it, it's all very good. He's like, I'm going to declare it. In case, in case you're wondering by, by, well, by, by what test do we evaluate things? God says you test it by my word, and I'm telling you, it's all good. It's all good. He's all powerful. He's all sovereign. But he's, but he's all good. And, And for us as the people of God, when we hear this. We begin to see the message of Genesis 1 all the more clearly. See, the message of Genesis 1 is this. The God that you and I are called to worship, love, and obey is all-powerful, all-sovereign, and all-good. That's the message of Genesis 1. 
The Israelites were wondering as they're in the desert getting ready to go into the promised land. Is God going to do what he said he would do? Genesis 1 came to them as it comes to us and he says, listen, he is all powerful. He is all sovereign and he is all good. So he is worthy of your worship, of your love and your obedience. Now that's all that the Israelites had to go with. But I want to close with this. We don't just simply have Genesis chapter 1 to believe that our God is all-powerful, all-sovereign, and all-good. We go beyond Genesis 1, and we see God doing something. There's this other moment in time in human history where the power, the sovereignty, and the goodness of our God is on full display. And it's when he sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection... God comes and he says, you want to know how powerful I am, how sovereign I am, how good I am? I did not spare my own son for you. And so it's why then Paul can write to the Corinthian church and say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. How can sinners like you and I go from our worship of the creation rather than the creator? How can we, under the judgment of God, become new creations? Because our God is the creator God. He is all-powerful, all-sovereign, and he is all-good. When we take this to heart, church family, when we step back from our circumstances and our situation and say, God, would you, just, would you just speak to me once again from your word? And you come to a chapter like this. Listen, I'm not going to tell you that your pain, your suffering, the situation that you're going through, the disappointment you might be experiencing is going to go away. But I'm telling you that every step along the way, you are reliant upon and have a God who is all-powerful, all-sovereign, and he's all-good. And if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, you and I have this promise. He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. Which is why the psalmist would once again say, where does my help come from? It comes from the maker of heaven and earth. May we never forget that. Amen? May the Lord be our help. Let's pray together. Father, we cling to you because everything else is, well, everything else is fleeting. There's no secure footing in anything in this world outside of you. And so, Lord, when we are tempted, when we're prone to wander, when we're prone to, Lord, drift, and let our thoughts go to despair. When we're tempted to believe that either one, you're not in control, or number two, that, that you can't really do anything about it, oh Lord, may your word come running back into our minds. And may your spirit help us in those moments, not just to simply know, but to believe. You are an all-powerful, all-sovereign, and all-good God. And so it's in you that we're going to trust, and it's in you that we're going to hope. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for this peace. We rest in it through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen.